0: Hello and welcome to Writer's Book Club. I'm your host, Michelle Baracoff, and each month I take a deep dive with an author into the writing, craft, and process behind one of their books. Today, you're in for a treat. My guest is the fabulous Rachel Johns, the author of an astounding 29 books. I absolutely loved this chat with Rachel. We covered so much. And yes, people, it is another long one, about an hour and a half. So if you feel like you need to break it up into part one, part two, part three, that is entirely up to you, or you can just binge the whole lot. We are going to be diving in deep to Rachel's latest novel, The Workwives, a contemporary novel that explores the question of how well we really know the people we work with. The novel revolves around workwives, Deborah and Quinn, who are each other's lifelines as they navigate office politics and jobs that pay the bills but don't necessarily inspire them. We've all been there. Outside work, they're also friends, but where Quinn is addicted to dating apps and desperate to find love, Deb has sworn off men. Although Deb is not close to her own mother, her teenage daughter Ramona is her life, and there's nothing she wouldn't do to protect her. But Ramona has other ideas and is beginning to push boundaries. Life becomes even more complicated by the arrival of a new man at the office one of the women is attracted to him, while the other hoped she'd never meet him again. So that's the setup. And from there, you can't help but fall into the lives and stories of these three women that Rachel has created. Now, a warning, there are spoilers in this episode, like massive spoilers. So if you are the sort of person who hates a spoiler, turn off now, go and read the book, and then come back and have a listen when you're done. Rachel very generously decided she was more than happy to discuss the twists and turns of the novel so that all of you writers out there could learn from this particular novel. She also takes us through her notebook for the novel, so the original character outlines and plot points and all the other things she wrote down before she started writing, so we can really see how this novel took shape from its inception. She also read some of the detailed notes from her editors, which was so insightful. This whole episode is a real masterclass in crafting a piece of contemporary commercial fiction. Let me tell you a little bit about Rachel. Rachel? She is the best-selling, Abia Award-winning author of The Patterson Girls and 28 other romance and women's fiction books, including her most recent novel, the one we're talking about today, The Workwives*. Rachel is currently Australia's leading writer of contemporary relationship stories around women's issues, a genre she calls life-lit. Rachel's first rural romance novel, Jilted, won Favourite Australian Contemporary Romance in 2012, and her novel, The Patterson Girls, won the 2016 Romance Writers of Australia Ruby Award, and also the 2015 Australian Book Industry Award for General Fiction, which is a very huge, very big deal. It's no surprise that Rachel continually places in Booktopia's Top 50 Aussie Authors Poll. Rachel lives in the Swan Valley in WA with her hyperactive husband, three mostly gorgeous heroes-in-waiting, i.e. her sons, two ravenous cats, a cantankerous bird, and a very badly behaved dog. Please enjoy this writerly chat with the fabulous Rachel Johns. Hi, Rachel.
1: How are you? I'm good. I'm so excited to be on your fabulous podcast. I've been loving
0: it since you started. Thank you. Well, it's been a hot minute since we organized this for about two years ago. We were chatting and you said, oh, I'd love to come on, but which book should I do? And yes. what about my November 2022 book? And I said, yeah, let's lock that in. And it felt like such a long time away. And now here we are. I know. And I don't
1: think I'd actually started even writing the book when I, um, when I spoke to you. Oh, I think I, you know, I was about to start writing it. And so it was actually interesting, and you'll probably ask this, but because I knew that I was going to do this podcast, I thought quite a lot about my process as I was writing it. Of course now I've forgotten all that. So I'm having out and
0: my talk. That's so awesome. I love the fact that it's uh, was influenced by the podcast. It, really it was like, I really need to think about my process. Well, I think it was a right a good time to think about my process
1: anyway. I'd been through a bit of a, a rough patch and stuff and I knew that I need to sort of not do things differently really, but um focus on, you know, just a few things that I they'd forgotten about kind of thing. And so yes, having you make me think,
0: well, how do I write a book? It helped. (laughs) Oh God, that's amazing. Well, we'll talk about that later. Cause I think, you know, one of the questions I have for you is what you learned about writing through this book. So that sounds like it could be quite a juicy answer there. Um, So well, let's start with the book. It is Such a fabulous book. I always try and read the book as close to the podcast interview as possible so that it's fresh in my mind. So I just finished it a couple of days ago. Oh, thank you. And it's, oh, it ends on such a, oh, just loved it. Such a good little twist in the end. And it had me completely hooked. Excellent. That's what we liked. Yeah. (laughs) Absolutely. And also love the cover. Just so
1: gorgeous. Yeah. I'm pretty happy with that cover. You know, I've been very blessed by the cover theories the whole of my career, really. So.
0: Can't really complain because, as we all know, people judge books by covers. Yeah, they do. And when you're looking at Big W or, you know, a bookshop and you've got all of those books, you know, your covers always stand out, don't they? That's
1: good. Yeah, you hope so because it is. There's so many books out there, which is wonderful, yeah. you know. Um, and I think from when I started getting published in Australia, which was about 12 years ago now, you yeah, know, they weren't they weren't publishing as much Australian fiction as they are. And then we've also still got, of course, all the overseas stuff. But yeah, it's so great to see so many more books and availability for authors to
0: you know, have the publishing option. But it means, yeah, you, you have to do something to stand out, don't you? <laughs> yeah, you do. And I know you love pink. I'm currently looking at... Actually, we t- should take a little screenshot to show <laughs> everybody. Rachel has pink glasses, pink hair. Pink um, hair. And, and we not wearing pink, which I often do. But yes. It's got to have a contrast, right? To, yeah. You to highlight them. the pink. Yeah. Um, But you have pink on the book. Did you ask for the pink on the book? No,
1: I didn't. And it's funny because, you know, I I gave up asking anything quite a few years ago because I realized, A, I don't really know anything about design. That's not my forte. And when they used to ask me to put input at the beginning, you know, the types of covers that I might be like like to have on my book and examples of people and colors and all that sort of stuff and themes... Whatever I did never came on the cover, so I sort
0: gave up. <laughs> and so, no, but it was lovely to have a bit of pink on there. And the beautiful spine, like that is just going to yeah. stand out so beautifully. I don't know why I'm holding it up. This is a podcast and not a YouTube <laughs> video, but I'm keep holding and the book Can I up. have a look? I will, we will take a screenshot. Also, I loved how just going onto your website and having a look at all of your books together on the website, they look so good together. So, yes, you must be really, really thrilled with all the covers. Anyway, moving on from co- covers into the meat of the book, Rachel, mm-hmm. please tell us how The Workwives came to you, how it all came into being, what was your inspo, how did it happen?
1: Yeah, well, it was interesting because I was thinking about writing something else that I've had an idea for, you know, well, I would say it's not really an idea, it's the seed of an idea, and I wasn't kind of feeling very confident about it, but I was thinking, oh, you know, time to start is looming, I'm going to have to make myself get excited about that book and work out the characters and then I was doing a podcast actually um with a brand new magazine I think it's called and the lady who was interviewing me said that she was really looking forward to having friday night drinks with her work wives and I'd actually been just reading around that time a book called the bestseller code I don't know if you heard of yes, it? Yes, I have, yeah, because yeah. I, I can't I remember who wrote it. On my shelf yeah, it was something. two, was it two people that wrote two it? Two people, yeah. They looked at the um, scientific science stuff that I don't understand with yeah. bestsellers like Daniel Steele and Nicholas Sparks and J.K. Rowling That's and Dan true. Brown and all that and worked out what was the common sort of threads for all of their books and one chapter was on titles and so I would, I was thinking in sort of, I guess I had that The title sort of thing in my head that certain titles work better than others. One of the titles they said works really well was three words: the um, sort of an adjective and then a noun, if I remember right. (laughs) Um, So I used to be an English teacher, so it's terrible that I don't remember which is which and all that kind of stuff. But um, it's a long time ago now. So you know, um, they were talking about also that things that titles that people can really. As soon as you know the title, you understand, you know, the concept of the book, it's very strong. Um, and I personally, I think probably about three or four of my books, I have started with titles um, and I actually find not, you know, we know as writers that nothing is easy, but I find when I've got a really strong title that sort of it, it, it not easy to say it's the wrong word, it comes together a bit more uh, I can't think of the word, but is it like it sets the tone? Yes, it sets the tone. It sets, sometimes maybe the theme. You know, mm-hmm. it does exactly what those people in that book were saying. It gives you kind of an idea of what the story will be about. I mean, very vague idea, but it grounds me in my writing kind of thing. Um, and I, I love titles. So I get very excited if I've got a really good title. And it. it sort of, I think, gives, makes me more excited about the book, if that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. Caveat in there is that the title can change between when I have one, to later, but that doesn't matter. As long as I've got a title that I love while I'm writing it um, and that I feel is strong, it seems to just help make the writing process smoother. Maybe that's yeah. the word. I don't yeah. know. It helps me focus. And so I heard her say she was looking forward to having Friday night drinks with her work wives. And because I was thinking about title, I just suddenly thought, the work wives, that fits exactly with what they were you know, saying in that book. And I thought, oh my gosh, that's such a good title for a book. And, you know, I've been on tour for a couple of weeks and some people have said they know what a work wife is and some people have never heard the term, but, you know, there's work husbands and work wives and people that you have a connection with at work and they help you through the highs and the lows of, of that. Um, this woman that I was speaking to, she was talking about her women friends at work kind of thing. And I just thought, oh, that's a really sort of, I do write books that are about female relationships and, you know, the, the diff- those types of Um, relationships that we have family friends uh, strangers sometimes And I'd never written about work friends and I thought it's such a really interesting uh, friendship because often you the people you spend your before COVID the people you work with are the people that you spend more time sometimes with than with your partner or your kids and you know yet you may not have actually met them if you hadn't worked together because you may be of different ages generations you may have different cultural backgrounds, different hobbies and interests, but something makes you click at work and then that friendship grows. So I thought that was like a, a kind of really interesting um, idea. So I got super excited about that. And then kind of luckily, I think I was editing a previous book or, you know, just finishing writing or something. And so I had time to sort of just let the idea mull in my head. And it was one of those ideas. And I feel like was, I've written, I think, 28 full, like two. Eighteen or pick out the next one Nineteen full length novels and a few more novellas and stuff. I think in that time, probably three books maybe have just been strike of inspiration and kind of. I think someone keep, some people call them fairy dust books where it just kind of all comes together. I was desperately in need of one of these books because the one before that I rewrote. I got rid of sixty five thousand words and had to start. To get, you know, oh god, right. So you oh, know, I, mean, I, I think it was time to have one of those. Just one one of the ones that pull. pours out of you, yeah, and that's kind of what it was. Yeah. It was a real joy to write, <sighs> and I, I said I really needed that because I think otherwise I was about to throw myself off a cliff or give up, give up writing <laughs> completely. But because I had a couple of weeks to mull around, I just sort of started thinking about characters and and then you know what might come between them, and it all sort of came together in my head. I mean, obviously, as I write, things change, mm. but from that initial seat of inspiration. And then, then I guess I like to say that writing a book is a bit like doing a jigsaw puzzle without the picture. You know, you have, I have lots of little seeds of ideas or things I would like to write about or explore, articles I've read, um, you know, a, car- a job that I think is interesting, those sorts of things, an issue or a thing, you know, but I have to wait till let sort of connect with other ideas because on their own, they're not strong enough. Yeah. And yeah, so a couple of other things for this book. I'd had been I'd read an article about uh, online da- dating app addictions and then I'd read uh, doing the rounds around the time was that um, article from the 1950s. It was on the internet people were sharing. Like housewives. Yeah, how to get a <laughs> husband in 129 ways. So there was lots of little things that came together after that initial idea.
0: Um, but yeah, that was definitely the first. I hope I've answered that question. Probably. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, so all the inspiration came from different places but isn't it funny when you do get an idea so you had the idea of the work wives then suddenly that article that you read you know six yes. months before or that other thing that just like everything almost conspires to come into the idea yes. as well and think oh that could fit and that could fit um, yeah it's it like must one have-
1: thing sparks another it's like a domino effect because yeah yeah,
0: yeah. and are you and are you op- you're open to it as well like I guess if you're listening to say a podcast or a an interview with another author and you think oh oh adoption or dating yes. apps or something like that you think oh I think i could all t-
1: writers are, yeah, yeah. the ideas all the time yeah um, almost on the lookout you know just hoping that the next amazing yeah. idea is around the <laughs> corner so you know I do save um, articles that I see or uh, you know even pictures or I'm not very visual writer but it, little things I'll I'll think or I'll write in my notebook I'd like to write about circuses or whatever yeah you know and and that might take years to get there, but yeah. it has to come together with other stuff. So you're constantly yeah, on the lookout, but I do feel like some books are more ready to write straight away and others, you know, I've got other ideas I might never um, actually write because they might never sort of join together with the right other ideas, if that yeah. makes sense.
0: Yeah, yeah. And they, that might have, those ideas might have to wait for the next book or the, the yeah. one after that. It must have been lovely. With 28 or 20, I, I thought there were 29, but 20.
1: I think it's 29, including it's a um, 10,000 10, oh, word novella. That was yes. so as well. I, I was like, oh, do I, can I count 10,000 words as a book? Definitely. Definitely. It's a book. 20, it's it's probably one of the hardest to write because I'm a rambler in right. on, in laptop on the page. And so, you know, writing 10,000 words, I think it's a miracle that I managed to write a story in 10,000 words.
0: <laughs> well, I just read, uh, Claire Keegan's book that was on the Booker Prize shortlist yeah. and it's a novella and really they they call that a book so you know it's a book Rachel well, so so made it 29 9 books all right after 29 books it must be absolutely wonderful when you strike upon an idea like the workwives and think I have not written about women working together before mm-hmm. and so I'm going to take that and run with it
1: very true because it is as you know the more books you write you know, uh, it's harder. So in some ways it's harder, or I think I go through stages. So I, said I had a few years where I was very much thinking, oh my gosh, will I ever have another idea? And then after the joy of writing this book and a few thing, other things that I've done recently, just to really find the love for writing again, suddenly the ideas are sparking. And now I'm like, oh my gosh, I need to write faster so I can, you know, do this stuff. But it is, it is difficult cool because you want to write the same kind of book because that's what your readers obviously come to you for. But I did not want to be writing the same book over and over again for me and for my readers. But I also think it's very hard in contemporary fiction to find, that's why, you know, I guess we're all sort of ears out to to those modern things like dating app addictions and things like that, um, gaslighting, which is quite, you know, coercive control, all the things that are current, the Me Too movement. I think, you know, a lot of people pounce on those because in contemporary fiction, there's nothing taboo anymore. You know, it doesn't matter if someone has a baby outside of marriage. It's okay to be gay. Um, often, you know, rule like laws, like adoption laws and stuff have changed. so It's not closed. You can do DNA testing to find yeah. You can find people on Facebook. You've always got a mobile phone. So why, you know, you can't be stranded somewhere. I joke that I think these historical fiction authors, they reckon they've got it hard because they've got to do all this research and they get it right. But hey, it's all there. They can Google it all. It all happen. They can, like, have, go away for 10 yeah. months and have a baby, you know. Um, whereas, so it is hard, I think, in, in contemporary yeah. fiction. I mean, I'm, I'm tongue-in-cheek here. Every fiction genre has, has its, you know, hard parts. But yeah. I do think that, yeah, it is, it is exciting when you think about sort of a concept that you haven't read about much before as well or written yourself because, you know, it's, that's one of the
0: things we need to do, keep things fresh. Absolutely, and it sounded like you needed something fresh to really reignite. So what what had, had happened? You. Had you just been, had you lost your mojo? You just really I felt?
1: Think, I think I was burnt out, to be honest. Mm. Um, I think it was a combination of that and, but, and all the pressure that I was putting on myself. You know, A, because this is my full-time job, so it has to pay my bills. So if I'm not feeling creative or have a great idea, I've got the pressure where I think, well, I still have to write a book, but I don't want to put a terrible one out because, you know, that's not long-term. That's not going to keep my career going. Um, But I need to pay the bill. So it's like the pressure was kind of just getting to me. And I think it's also, you know, social media is wonderful, but it's also, it's got the flip side that we are so connected to everyone. We can see what everyone else is doing. And if you're going through a bad patch, you know, someone says, I've written 10,000 words today and you're struggling to write 200. It's very easy to sort of just feel woe with me and get worse and worse into that um you know we can be tagged in terrible reviews um which why do people I do, do that? that yeah i know like i read my reviews when i and i have learned to read them when i know i'm in an okay place to read them and it's not gonna be water off of that fact but it's gonna be like oh well that's one opinion i know i don't like every book i read you know whatever but when i was in sort of a really doubtful anxious time you know i did get a couple of people tagged me in bad reviews mm. and it's like you, you get a tag and you think I'll read that because and and then it's horrible or not horrible but you know it's it's saying like it really plays into your belief in or non non belief with yeah. doubt that you can't do this and so I think it was a combination of things Um but then yeah I, I really struggled with Outback Secrets I wrote thirty thousand words of one sort of heroine with the same hero and that that wasn't working for me and it made it I think it was more in my head like I had writing friends who were saying to me. You've got all the elements of a romance, you know, you've got two characters who have conflict and they've got good backstories and all, all the stuff you need, but I just could not get it to work. And then I started again, wrote another 35,000 and the same thing happened. So then of course, I'm really doubting my ability. So what I did to get over it kind of thing was I, I did go and see a doctor. I saw my doctor I've had since I was 12. She's wonderful. And she said, you have got to talk to someone about this. And because I wanted to keep writing books, I don't yeah. want to do anything else. Um, I can't do anything else as well. But that's a bit of a problem now. Um, And so I talked to someone. I also started on anxiety medication, and I took a month off social media. And I really made it. Reminded myself, like it's so easy. I think to look at what you don't have or you haven't achieved, rather than what you do have or what you have achieved. All I ever wanted to do was write books because I loved that. And so I need to earn. i living. I was a teacher, so I thought I want to earn a teacher's wage. Now I do that sometimes a lot more. Um, you know, and so that's, I feel like I've really reminded myself, movie deals, New York Times bestsellers, you know, none of that actually matters. What matters is that I'm writing books that I enjoy and that other people enjoy too, even if it's a smaller amount, then you know, as long as I can keep doing what I'm doing. Yeah. And so i would really tried to be kind to myself in the last year to re- remember why I love doing this and to focus on that rather than all the things that are out of my control.
0: Yeah. Oh, you're such an inspiration, Rachel. Thank you for sharing Thank that because no, I, that's okay. they're the things that all writers struggle with and mm-hmm. you are 29, as we have established, 29 <laughs> books down the track. i was just say quickly,
1: honestly, I think you're right, all writers, no matter what, you know, if you haven't got a book published, you're so focused on the people that do rather than enjoying the journey of getting there, mm-hmm. you know, and, and learning and thinking. I spoke to a new writer a couple of weeks ago and she said to me, you know, how do I get published? And I said, well, "What's the book kind of about?" And, and and then she said, "You know, it's my first one." And I said, well, to "Be honest, a lot of people don't get their first book published. You know, some people don't get the first. I took seventeen years or fifteen years. Hopefully, no one takes that long. But you know, and she said, "Yeah, I've heard the first book can be a failure." And I said, "It's not a failure. It is a. Le- it's part of the learning process. And you know, it's so easy to think focus on publication rather than focus on just writing a good book and having fun with it." And so then when you do get that first published, it's like, well, that was great, but now I want the next thing. Yeah. And so we're always just what we want. And, and that I don't think that's A, good for our creativity, but it's also not a fun way to live life. <laughs> so, yeah, it's like really. you're about what you don't have rather than being happy for what you do. Yeah. And we're the first to remind our kids of this, you know, exactly. well, look at what you have got. <laughs> we're harsh on ourselves or, yeah, we don't practice what we preach.
0: Yeah. yeah. We're trying to practice what I preach. Yeah. Same. Aren't we all? Um so you had the idea for the work wives how did the process of writing the novel then roll out for you did it follow the same process as your other novels or was it a little bit different for this one I
1: think it did pretty much follow the same process probably not in the last few books as i said because before even before outback secrets i was kind of getting um stressed i suppose and it wasn't an enjoyable process um but i did a lot of the same things like i don't do a huge amount of planning beforehand, but I do think as much about character as I can. Um, I know we're not on um, video for the thing, but I've got a, 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 a notebook in front of me. I, I, I keep a notebook for each book. Um, it gets messier and messier as I go on. But the things I wrote down in the beginning, like I just wrote, I, I, wrote, I try and sort of center myself in what the book's going to be about. So the first page of this book says The Work Wives, and then it's got, I wrote the tagline before I wrote anything else, which I don't always do but how well do you really know the people you work with? And then I said, it's a feel-good contemporary fiction about friendships in the workplace and online dating and the lies we tell those closest to us in the name of protecting them. So I really tried to nut, nut down what the book was about and and then who the main characters were. Then I write sort of what the issues might be like. And that's really all the planning I kind of do. I've got like one page. I write a little bit about character Um. Yeah. And it's interesting because, as I said to you before we started, I think because I was doing this podcast, I, I wrote some um, things along the way, and I I wish that I had done this with every book because it's interesting to think you knew more than you did. But so every time something happened in the book that I didn't think was going to happen, so I don't plan a lot, but I have a vague idea. And this one, as I said, it kind of was more it was more solidified in my head. But I wrote here, things I don't know, didn't know when I started. This was for you, Michelle. <laughs> Thank you. Most major plot points. Um, what exactly someone had done to Deb. I'm not going to say the name. Yep. I didn't know what that was. You know, I just knew that there was going to be sort of Deb had, had a bad yeah. relationship experience, but I didn't exactly know why. I didn't know why till I got to that stage kind really? of thing. And I said, um, I didn't know about another character's wife and what they were, you know, what their issue kind of, I don't know, are we doing spoilers here or not? Oh, well, we can, but we'll put a spoiler alert. It's totally up to you, Rachel. Well, yeah, so I didn't know that Oscar's wife had early onset Alzheimer's um, or that he was even married. Um, I didn't know that Lucy's dad was a priest. Um, I loved him. For for a minute, I thought he was going to be a love interest there. I know, someone said that too. And the funny thing is, was He was actually a Catholic priest when I first put him on the page, and then my publishers were like, "Oh, I think that's a little bit too." How does he change? But uh, um, an Anglican priest. I didn't know about Mrs. D's character at all. Didn't plan her in the part, or that she would have a stroke, or that she would have quite a big impact in the reveal of what was going on. I didn't know about a rape. (laughs) Um, I didn't know. Oh, this is something that that I said. I didn't know that Deb's childhood had. Munchausen by proxy, fictitious disorder, by imposed on another. Which you probably think, well, she doesn't, that because that was taken out in the uh, okay. So edit. So I really yeah. laid on. I think I, I yeah, we'll about get to edits too. I didn't know that Dad had a psychology degree. Um, I didn't know what Sydney's problem with Lucy was. So you can see how much I didn't know. I didn't know that Quinn's. Um, oh yeah, what Quinn really wanted in life, which I didn't know I did, and also it was going to be a post COVID. Um, office. But I removed all the references to the pandemic uh, later oh, on. No. So yeah, that, that's, a, that's sort of a list wow. of what I didn't know. So you can see like, there's a lot of major things I sort of just trusted my characters to kind of tell me. I guess what I did know was what was going, that there was something that was going to come between them. It was going to be a man and it was going to um, you know, cause some sort of drama.
0: I think that the fact that you didn't know some of those really major things is what kept it fresh and surprising for me as a reader were you sort of saying well how can I make things worse or what could this issue be I mean even the story of what happened to Deb back in New York and why she had been sort of effectively on the run with her daughter Ramona and not on social media and just keeping a really low profile that was quite shocking
1: yeah yeah and it's hard because you know you've got I think it's a fine line between something that's shocking enough but is not is believable too and I was I was a bit worried about that yeah. So, you know, in this writing world, we always get panthers and plotters. I joke that I'm a prayer. I just pray that it will work out kind of in the end. Um, another thing which I do do sometimes is looking through, it. I can not see it here, so maybe it's more of a real romance thing. I think you've got a question about that. But another thing that I do is I always write a list of things that, that people need to speak about.
0: Right. That's such a good idea because, for example, you know that Deb eventually has to tell Quinn and Ramona. What and then she ends up telling Tristan as well about what yeah. happened to her in New York. But I was thinking, oh, is she, how much detail is she going to go into with her daughter about that? Yeah. And, and so you're sort of waiting for her to have that conversation. But that in itself is um, just still how she's going to handle that. Like I was constantly just wondering, you did such a great job, Rachel. Oh, I'm not articulating you. it really well. What but you all wow, of, thank you. All of those points that you brought up about things you didn't know. Just came at the right moment, and you can just tell as a reader, I felt like I was just in such capable hands.
1: Oh, thank you. Well, I was going to say so, read the, um, read that talking and things like that. I find also if I don't, you know, I try and write 2000 words a day, don't always get there. And as I said, I become really kind to myself, and that, you know, I don't beat myself up about that Um, because some days it it, it evens out me in. Um, But I find that if I have a list and I can't find it in this book, my book is very, my my notebooks are very messy and they're all like, you know, I just randomly write stuff in there and then wonder why I can't find it when I'm sure I've written a note about this somewhere. But um, one of the things that I do usually have is um, a list of all the things that the main characters need to talk about with each other. And then when I'm writing a scene, I kind of think, well, hang on, I look at that list sometimes if I'm struggling with, you know, I'm not sure what's happening next and think, well, is it time for any of those conversations to happen? And some are small little things like the fact, you know, that Quinn's parents live in Adelaide or whatever, and What, to, um, you know, and I think, well, who's she going to tell about this or previous relationships that they may have had? So some are major, some are small, but they can help me work out if I'm not so sure what to write next. I, I go, well, hang on, is it ready? Are we ready for this conversation? And
0: yeah. Yeah. And I guess, too, just always thinking in the back of your mind as a novelist, as such a an experienced novelist, knowing, well, is this essential to either character development or moving the plot forward? Do you have yeah. that in the back of your mind as well? Yeah, I think I do. Like, I'm a rambler, as I said. So I do write long. You are preaching to the converted. I am a rambler from way back on the page and in person. the so. <laughs> Same. Um, this will be a long podcast. Sorry,
1: everyone. <laughs> Sorry, everyone. <laughs> So this book lost forty thousand words in so it was very long. I think it's about one hundred and thirty-five. It was one hundred and seventy something when I, you know, first handed it in, and a lot of a lot of stuff had to go. But that didn't have to like it's Still, it's hard to explain. It didn't have to go because it wasn't necessarily moving the plot forward. But we had too many different plots. Like there was a lot of office stuff more in there. And sort of we basically removed all that. I find it hard sometimes to get into the chapter and how to start it. But then I make sure every day when I write, I could kind of, when I'm about to write a chapter rubble, or a scene, I always start in my notebook with um, like chapter 24. And then it says here, at the point, showing Deb letting down some walls, getting to know each other and her, ashamed about her past growing up. And then I've written walking with the dog, um, or with his dog. And then I've written, yeah, talk about his parents' you know, I mean the location of where it's gonna be, um, and just a few other so I I kind of write sometimes as snippets of um dialogue. I'd scribble that as I come with Silicon Head. But yeah, so each day I kind of think, well, what is the point of this scene? What do I have to show? And you know, um sometimes it's easier than others. Sometimes I can definitely know what's <laughs> going on. Um but yeah, I try not to write a scene that's not got, you know, a reason to be there.
0: Yeah. yeah. And I was going to ask you about what happens when you sit down to write a scene, because uh, as I was flicking through for, for prepping for the interview, I thought, how does she start each chapter? And you often start with dialogue. Is that something that sort you of- Just have a look. Yeah.
1: Yeah. I think I actually do. I do try and do a bit of both. So, you know- yeah. um, There's a mix. Yeah. Sometimes yeah. it's like an
0: action and then jump into some dialogue. Yeah. And
1: I, I think I probably think spend longer on how to start a chapter and how to end a chapter than the stuff- in the middle, look, if I that makes sense, make yeah. No. Uh, well, tell me about that. Well, often I find that the end I've written more than I need. You know, I'm thinking how I'm going to end this chapter. You know, this. Uh, you know, you know, we need to put a, a sort of a hook at the end of yeah. the most. You know, we if, ideally a hook at the end of each chapter so that people don't want to close the book and go to sleep or you know. So, but I've, I, it's <laughs> not always easy. Um, yeah, and I think especially in the types of books that that this you know is not a crime novel, there is elements of. Of sort of elements of crime in here, but it's not a crime novel, the thriller. And so in in romance and in general contemporary fiction, it can sometimes be harder to get that hook at the end of the chapter because, you know, it might be a more gentle story or so, but I really try. Um, but then sometimes I've worked out now often, uh, this is through writing a few books and editing with people, that the last paragraph can just be cut and I've actually got a hook already. So, okay. So... Okay, um, Maybe that's a tip for maybe people, you know, I can yeah. just try to write the end. I, sometimes I've gone on longer than I need to. And I'm thinking, oh, golly, how am I going to read it? How and then I just go, okay, I'm just going to leave it. Yeah. And then when I go to edit, the editor will, me, if it's fitting, un- will suddenly we go, I don't think we need this. Or the chapter can okay. end here, you know, this question. Yeah. So, so, yeah, I do write, probably overwrite, and then realize that I've, that's something that I've noticed in my work. But definitely, at the now, I think that I've noticed it, I don't necessarily always write that extra chapter or extra paragraph, if you know what I mean. Yeah. Sometimes I still do. Or if I'm wondering how to end, I suddenly go, hang on, Rachel, remember, sometimes you've gone on too long. And so I'll w- look back. And, of course, then it's painful because if you are aiming for 2,000 words a day and then you have to delete 200, damn it. But I remind myself that it's better to have a you know a, a good end than
0: 200 extra words in my word count. Yes, 1,800 effective words and uh, reign in the rambler. Better. Yeah. <laughs> Quality and quantity. Because you've got three protagonists or three points of view too, it, you must always be thinking, well, I don't want to get people so invested in this character. Like the next chapter is going to be Ramona or Quinn. So I sort of want people to come back to Deb and want keen yeah. to come back to Deb, but I want them to also then um, get fully invested very quickly in what's happening with the other two characters as well.
1: Yeah, I think that's one of the hardest things is writing multiple point-of-view chapters um, or pa- ca- characters. Like, you know, you don't want people, you want people to be invested equally in each one. You want them to sound different, um, which is why. So for this book, um, I've written another one, you know, I'm sure that, yeah, Art of Keeping Secrets, for example, has all women around the same age. They've got kids the same age. You know, they're kind of, it, and so it's harder to distinguish those but you really yeah. have to make an effort to make sure that the, each voice is slightly you know different so ideally I mean I do have at the top of each of these chapters Deborah you know and then Quinn so it does tell but ideally you shouldn't need that even it should be straight away you'll know somehow whose voice you're in because of their attitude the way they talk and all you know what else that's going on but I think yeah that's one of the hardest things is making sure they're different enough so it's easier in this book because we have got a 15 year old a 28-year-old or something, and a 42-year-old, I mean, not massive, like, and then we've got an 80-year-old character who doesn't get point of view, but you know, then there's enough distance that their life experiences are going to be different, even the way they talk sometimes. And, of course, then you add personality in there as well as age, and yeah. that you know, helps. But the other problem with writing multiple point of view characters is you don't want to get someone, as you said, to get so connected to one that they really don't care about what's happening with the others. Yeah. So I think the trick there as well is that, they have to, the stories have to be connected enough that so you can't miss, you know, and that's really hard. And I'm not saying I do it perfectly. The other thing you juggle or you think is I've I've learned probably not to do a pattern. Um, oh, and even in my rural romances where, you know, you got hero and heroine. Um, if I try, if I set up a pattern of hero, heroine, hero, heroine, hero, heroine, sometimes it's almost like that, but then I'm like, well, what's gonna happen and that I'm more likely then to put a chapter in that really doesn't need to be there because I'm thinking You're trying to wedge it in. Yeah, I need his his point of view or something. And so it was the same with this book. I was kind of aware that I didn't want to lock myself into a um a pattern because so sometimes I think I think there's a couple of places where you get maybe two of Debs in one go and then, you know, you might see Ramona Quinn, Ramona Quinn, Deb, Ramona. But at the same time you don't want half the book to be with Deb and only a quarter of, you know to the other two. So it's something I'm aware of, yeah. um, but don't let it sort of dictate too much, if that makes sense.
0: Yeah, because I guess too, yeah, you're right. As the plot is unfolding, certain characters are going to be able to tell that part of the story better. Yeah. Like when they're looking for Ramona, that has to come from Deb. Yeah, yeah,
1: yeah exactly. Because Quinn hasn't got his dead daughter. Yeah. Quinn's not going to be, I mean, she's going to be concerned, but she's not going to be that heart-pounding fear that a mum, has if her daughter is missing yeah um and then I think the thing with a book like this I mean there's you know if you have only one point of view there's challenges if you have multiple point of view there's challenges um this one particularly I had a few things that I wanted to come out and and working out who that would write near the end or close to the end working out who would like who would get certain things at the the right time I had to had to make sure that the reader didn't get something before, you know that yeah. was a bit challenging towards the end, and I think I moved around a few chapters here or there um, in the edit after when I realised, oh no, it's better that you know we don't know this about Oscar before this person finds out this about Oscar, you know. Yeah. Um, so yeah, that was that was a little bit of a challenge. So, but uh, again, then there was times where I thought, and now I'm remembering. You know, I did need a middle chapter because I didn't want Deb and then Deb say when a drama was happening, I felt like we needed a break kind of thing. So it was a matter of then working out, well, how do I make this chapter matter? I feel like we need another point of view here. So I need
0: to make something important in that point of view, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. That makes perfect sense. Um, just while we're on characters, one of the listeners, Deb Jordan. Thank you for sending in your question, Deb. Hi, Deb. <laughs> she says, I love Rachel's relatable dialogue and the way each character has a unique voice. Do her characters develop as the story emerges or are they fully formed from the beginning? So I know you, you said you have an outline when you're sort of your initial brainstorming.
1: It's definitely more that they develop as I go. Yeah. Um some I know a lot more about before I start. Um but I've learnt that I just have to start and hope and pray that it, they reveal themselves to me because otherwise, I, that's just the way my brain works. And if I try and know everything about them beforehand, I'll be waiting for, I'll never write. Um, and so I do also, in, a, in my notebook, I have got a page beat or a page two pages for each character. Um, and it's interesting to look back. I think if you look in my real romance notebooks, I often have a lot more per character. Whereas here, I've got the most about Deb, I think, I've got, she's 42, single mum, works in payroll, has a 15-year-old daughter. I said her flaws, she's a helicopter parent, overprotective. And then I wrote a bit about her backstory. But as I told you earlier, I didn't know a lot of exactly what the detailed backstory was. I just knew certain, you know, sort of how I want her to feel, if that makes sense. um, I did put her goal, which, you know, you're hearing writing goal, motivation and conflict. I, I don't always have all that sort of stuff. Um... But with Deb I said basically, and I I think often you know in writing we're told it has to be really concrete visible goal and stuff and I just don't work necessarily like that and um, so a lot of that stuff comes to me as they go. but I had the goal for Deb was just to protect and provide for Ramona and herself to avoid trauma and pain. And then I put fear. I do like using um, for each of my characters I, I have a I often use a book at the beginning called, I think it's 16 Master Archetypes for Heroes and Heroines. It's quite an old book. So I usually also choose an archetype for each character. Um, So for Deb, I said she was a nurturer. She looks out for Quinn and she looks out for her daughter. Um, And then I was very, I didn't even, this shows I did like literally hardly anything for Quinn. I've just written 28 single, looking for love, works and sales and marketing, which changed. Oh, well, she's
0: marketing, I suppose. Well, yeah, digital marketing.
1: And, yeah, literally all I've got is Floor, addicted to dating apps, backstory, grew up in a huge Italian slash Irish family, strong Catholics. And then I've got, she's a free spirit, but I haven't written much else. So, yeah. Okay. Um, so, she developed more on the page. Yes, yeah, she definitely yeah. did. And Ramona changed quite a lot.
0: Oh, did she? You Tell me about yeah. her.
1: Well, so Ramona, I've literally written Floor doesn't fit in. Um, Ramona leaves to learn she doesn't need to fit in and that her mum did what she thought was best needs to learn life isn't always black and white but I also thought you know we're talking about those uh, you know issues current topics and stuff with Ramona I thought or maybe she's not sure about her sexuality I thought maybe she would be asexual um, you know and and sort of working those things out but then um, because I was trying you know in romance obviously my romances are pretty much a you know a straight love story kind of thing. Um, I thought, well, I want to, you know, explore some diversity and put some different sort of things in there. But then on the page, I met Elijah. And I was was like, I'm in love with Elijah. Ramona has to be in love with him as well. So that kind of just threw that out the window. And so her character really took the most or changed the most and I really didn't know what I wanted to do with her. And I just kept writing things and then, Hoping you know for the best. One other thing I do usually do, and I'm now it's not on my wall anymore because I've got the next books up on my wall. But I usually have a post-it note with each of the characters' name and one word that sort of reminds me what their sort of personality is. And do this with the women's oh. fiction more than the romance because the romance, you know, you've got I've got a hero and heroine. It's it's easier to sort of keep track. But as I said, when you're writing multiple women or female characters you know, um, it's it's a bit harder sometimes. So I will have like, I think with Deb, I had overprotective. With Quinn, I had addictive. And then with Ramona, I think I had lost. So I kind of think about each, point. like if I'm struggling in their chapter or scene, I think, well, what's their overarching sort of thing at the moment that's, you know, stopping them or d- directing their their thoughts and their actions, and that helps me really Focus on what has to, or how they behave in a scene, or how they react to something. If that makes sense, yeah,
0: yeah. And that's a such a great idea because, in a way, it's making you also focus on the thing that needs to be resolved in their yes, character journey. Exactly. Right. It is usually,
1: I guess, a, a flaw or yeah, um, or something that's not com- making them whole kind of thing. Yeah. But yeah. So it's kind of yeah, it's about the arc, I suppose.
0: Yeah. yeah. Oh, that's so good. I wanted to ask you about the teenage characters because I know you have teenage boys. Yes, (laughs) three boys, right?
1: I have three boys and I've been away for three weeks and they're supposed to look after their own bathroom and their own toilet and the area. I just walked in there this morning because I've been so busy, I had a proper look, and I was like, OMG, this is disgusting. Teenage boys are feral.
0: (laughs) Also, they can never, ever seem to make the connection between the empty toilet roll and the rubbish bin that's right there. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> anyway, we digress. But you write teenage girls to perfection. You've got, you know, Ramona, obviously, um, and then the teenage girls in her orbit. And yeah. there are a few of them. Sort yeah, there are. actually right. I think, five teenage yeah. girls, I suppose, in this book. Yeah. Yeah, and they're all very different. How did you go about getting those teenage girls so right?
1: Well, I'm glad you think they're right. <laughs> I don't have teenage girls, but I think there's a couple of things. I have uh, friends with teenage girls and so I hear all their, you know, different kind of complaints to, you know, that I have with teenage boys, some similar, but there are a few differences. And um, the other thing is I can't remember what happened last week, but I remember my teens quite well and I have really good friends from school and, you know, I remember how, um you know, those relationships were very tense and heated and they're wonderful. One minute of your besties and the next day you're annoyed about something and, you know, we're writing letters to each other and pouring our hearts out. First crushes that felt like the end of the world if, you know, that yeah, didn't they didn't work out. You know, and um and it's also, you know, wondering where do I fit in the world and what and I think so, although things like social media, you know, we didn't have any social media, thank God, <laughs> I so much, but um you know, all technologies change, TV shows have changed, you know, music might go move on, but the emotions that everyone writes about and all those things, the emotions that people experience at that age have been the same across the generations, you know? And so I think it's about in in all um, characters, not just, you know, when you're writing one that's different to your own, is I think just drilling down on those universal emotions that everyone, so, you know, whether you're and even books like, you know, Alien, Alien Romance and stuff that's out there. Now, the re- reason people like it is, that, is because they still understand the, re- the, the universal themes and emotions that people experience. So by saying that, it's funny because I think there's a difference between writing for teenagers and writing yeah. about teenagers. And um, I had a couple of people, you know, well, it's been lovely. This once so I've got, Re, re- Ramona, while well, I've been meeting readers and stuff. And one lady said to me a couple of weeks ago. I think she was probably in her sixties. She said, "Oh, you did you did the teenage character so well." I laughed when um, she wrote "lol" or "laughing out loud" or something, and I thought, "Well, that's proof that I have done it wrong," because you know this was written a year and a half ago or so. But you know now, all we hear about is if you use a laughing out loud emoji or whatever that you're a boomer. You know, you're basically uh, that's just showing how out of touch you are. Yeah, you um, idiot. But I. <laughs> I think the good thing is, you know, the majority of my readers. Well, I do have a couple of teenage readers I do know definitely. Um, oh, you know, and and maybe more that I don't know about the My readership is probably, I'm guessing, primarily, you know, thirty plus, um, mainly women. Although we have some men who read as well. So, although I'm writing about a teenager, as long as those people feel connected and they feel like I've done right, you know, that's that's it's worth. Yeah. Whereas,
0: uh, you know, if it was writing a YA, I'm not sure that <laughs> I would have got it right. <laughs> yeah, that's a whole other world, isn't it? But yeah. one of the things I really love about your writing is that even those yeah, five teenage girls, but even the minor characters, they've got layers as well. So you show even the kind of the, the trope of the bully. She's not just a one-dimensional character. You do show her vulnerability and yeah. what her wound is and it's, it, you know, it's only a couple of paragraphs in that little yeah, scene yeah. towards the end. But, you know, how lovely to to get that layered view of even a minor character. Love well, that. that's probably something I've learned, I think, in the year's so writing because
1: yeah. I, it's bitten me on the bum a couple of times where I've written uh, villain characters and then had to re, not rewrite them, but people have, so with my first book, Jilted, I wrote um, a horrible character in that. And then the reader's like, we want more of this this series or more of this, you know, town kind of thing. And I hadn't got anyone really that I could use except this villain, this horrible person. And so I wrote a story about her and I had to really redeem her. I had to work out, you know, why she is the way she is. I didn't take, I told you I'm a slow learner. That's why it took 15 years. So then I wrote a villain in something to talk about and talk of the town and never intending to write her story either. But then readers really wanted half the the story, the publisher wanted my story. That's a book I've written next. And I then had to think, Geez, why is she such a B-I-T-C-H? I you I'm know, like, I I had to work that out. So I think I'm learning, you know, that if it, even if a character is horrible, none of A, none of us are all all bad or all good. We've all got layers, like you said. But it's good to I never planned on writing her story for a start. So that was but I realized, you know, I didn't just want her to be there as a plot device. Yeah, I wanted to show that, yeah, as you said, that she is a reason for being like this, and also give her a bit of a redemption arc mm-hmm. as well, even if it's not quite you know hundred percent there. Um, but it's another thing I didn't know. I didn't know why she was horrible, and you know, so that sort of came out as I it's screw, you know, as I got to know them. I thought about and as, as I write things on the page, I think, oh, maybe this could be why, you know. So it's very much organic and and working all that out as I go. And they say that.
0: Villain is the hero of their own story,
1: don't they? Yes, exactly. I'm sure, I'm sure what's her
0: name? Trying to remember her name now. I'm sure she thinks she is Sydney. Sydney, yes, Sydney. So talking about characters makes me think about your amazing dialogue. And we touched on it earlier, but I think your dialogue is genius. It always feels very realistic and it flows really naturally. But because, you know, some sections, by, by their nature, are dialogue heavy, you do this clever thing where instead of a dialogue tag, so it's not he said, she said, she said, she well, she said, she said in a lot of yeah. cases, um, you either leave the tag off altogether or you incorporate an action. So, for example, on page 22, mm-hmm. so this is just a little section, but uh, it's when the teenage girls, Sydney and Penzi are talking and, and Ramona, so they're asking her over to their place. and. Ramona says, really? Of course. Sydney glanced up briefly from her phone where her thumb was flying back and forth across the screen. Unless you've got to get home or something. No, I can come. Her mum wouldn't be home from work for another few hours. Awesome. Kenzie grinned and hitched her bag over her shoulder. Let's go. So I just thought that was a really good example because at no point in that little section do you say, she said, or Mm. she exclaimed or anything like that. It's either no tag or it's an action. Like, of course, Sydney glanced up briefly from her phone. And so you can sort of visualize the action and yeah. this sort of tone of her voice just because yeah, of that yeah. action. I just think it's very clever. Is that something that you've kind of learned over time as well? Or- I think
1: so. It would be interesting, actually, to I might do this myself, so look back on my first book and see how how things like that have changed. Yeah. Um, but it's very much, I mean, you know this, and I'm sure all our listeners know this, that they're our listeners. Yeah, our listeners, You're right. reader. <laughs> You're our listeners today. <laughs> they have to be um, you have to be a reader to be a writer. And I think writers read often differently to readers. In and sometimes that's annoying because it would be nice to be able to switch off and, you know, really enjoy a story. Um, mm. and I do. I love books and I enjoyed them. But I think I've picked up my di- the way I write dialogue, I've picked up over the years of reading people like Marianne Keyes, Liam Moriarty, my favourite American author, Ellen Hildebrand. And realize that, you know, yeah, if your characters are quite strong, technically you should be able to have a scene where you can tell who's talking without any tags or any dialogue because they're so unique. Now, that's pretty hard. (laughs) (laughs) But, you know, and and then action tags can break. So I like a mix of things. You know, sometimes there'll be a he said, she said. um, And sometimes there's areas where there's a lot of dialogue and there's Mm -hmm. not necessarily action tags. So occasionally there I will just say, know, Ramona said or whatever, just so you ground, you know, but then the next person I probably won't because if it's only two people, you know, that yeah. that's, you know, she's probably not going to say something straight away. So, yeah, I think it's, it's a matter of, to me, I like a variety of, of dialogue. And so I do think, you know, oh, if I've written a lot of action tags for a while, I think, oh, I don't want one of them, you know, like, so yeah. I I guess it up I a bit.
0: And... Yeah. 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 At no time, and this is a big book, you know, it's 500 pages. Yes, I told you, ramble on the page. I, I loved it. it. I loved it. I loved it. At no time did I ever have to go back and think, oh, God, I'm lost in this conversation. You know oh, how some t- some books you read yes. and there are no dialogue tags, but <laughs> you, you just go, yeah, yeah. oh, where am I? Who,
1: who's, and who's, I think that really annoys me. So, so I think annoying. You know, I think what you do as a writer is the things that piss you off you're very careful. And, you know, that doesn't mean I probably do lots of things that will piss other people off, but they don't annoy me. So I am I do them, you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. like, but, but things that I annoy uh, that annoy me when I'm reading a book, I'm very careful that, that I don't do that, awesome. um, you know, so or I try not to do that. <laughs> yeah. we, you know, I'm not saying we succeed, but, yeah. yeah, that's why I think reading books, that the books you love help you, but also books that, you know, you don't like. They can really help you know, well, hang on, I don't want to write a book like this or I don't want to do so what, what this is. So all reading is important. Yeah.
0: So we talked a little bit about uh, your process and and that you are pretty much a pantser, but you have this minimal amount of plotting that you do or this brainstorming session that you do before yeah. you start writing. I noticed that the big midpoint moment when that the promise of the prologue was revealed <laughs> fell. I don't know if you realise this pretty much at the 50% mark. Like, I think
1: I did realize that I don't it Oh was, my god. <laughs> well, I wanted it to happen. I wanted it to be that. But yeah. it was a matter of yeah, it, it was it sort of pretty much did fall perfectly that way. So yeah. I was hoping for it to happen, so maybe because I had that subconscious hope that it would happen. Yeah. That it did. But it was very, you know, I think the hard thing about pacing is I wanted to set up, you know, the characters and what their problems were and issues and why they both knew this man who suddenly arrives at the office who we do see in the prologue, but at the same time I didn't want it to be you know just boring setup type thing yeah and it's a little bit longer in oh, quite a lot longer I think the first the first half of the book probably takes place over a few months whereas the second half of the book I think it's almost week you know a couple of weeks at the most. Um, yeah. So the pacing is, you know, but yeah, it's amazing that it, did, it sort of just worked out um, that way. I didn't, I didn't know right till the end whether it would because I thought that the second half of the book would take, because it's quicker in yeah. terms of timing, I thought maybe it would be quicker on the page, but with everything that had to come out, it wasn't. So it did work out quite well. Interesting thing is I wrote the prologue. It changed a bit, of the prologue. I wrote the prologue first and... <laughs> Usually, I'm very scathing of my own writing. And I remember writing the prologue and thinking, wow, Rachel nailed, nailed it. Nailed it! <laughs> it's the best thing you've written for agents. And then I was so upset because when I handed it in, thinking, you know, everyone's going to agree with me. The first thing my agent said when she read it, I don't think you need the prologue. And she said, the prologue, I, I read the prologue and then I was just like, well, I don't care about the middle, the to getting there. I just want to know what happens. You know what next, kind of thing. And I was like, like I think we need it. And the other thing just, is, I'd written it in my head with a pro. Well, I had written a prologue, so that meant that the prologue is, in essence, the first chapter. It's what draws you into the story. Yeah. Whereas my first, uh, my chapter after the prologue to me wasn't a first chapter. You know, right. it wasn't. It was more yeah, easy three in months and getting to know. Yeah. So I was like, well, if we get rid of the prologue, then that first chapter to me isn't a strong, isn't a strong first chapter. And so I, I did get rid of the prologue in the first structural okay. edit. And then I, you know, changed the first chapters around and stuff. I think we started Ramona's point of view instead of Deb's and I did yes, a few okay. a few different things. And then I I said, and the copy edits? No, I I like. I think it still needs the, ta- the mm-hmm. prologue. It's hooky so I put back in, yeah. And then they said, okay, well, you can have the prologue, but we think it foreshadows too much. So it was a little bit more. It had a little bit more detail in about you know what was going, why the reasons, and who the person was, and all this sort of stuff. And I think okay. I think the prologue here. And I'm just going to check. Uh, the last line is, um, she could not work in the same office as that man. Yeah. Um, Whereas Um, originally I had um, something like she, he could never find out about Ramona, like, you know, kind of something like that. Um, And so, yeah, it changed, but I fought for it because I do think it was important uh, structurally. So,
0: yeah. Yeah, I'm just, good on you. I'm thinking about if I had have known that the issue was Ramona
1: I mean, to me, I thought it was kind of obvious. Yeah. Anyway, so I thought it wasn't one of those things we were, you know, keeping. Yeah. But so it's it's interesting, I think, because you're in your, you know, you're so much in your head and you know what's sort of, even if you're a flat pantser and you don't 100% know, by the time you finish the book, you you know. Um, and, but so it's e- interesting when an editor gets on board and thinks, well, maybe you don't need to know as much as you've given, you know, like, and you can actually Im- improve the book if you, you know, don't give away so much straight away. And I think that's the whole thing, like the suspense and crime, you know, you need to have all that, but yeah. we need it in women's fiction. We need it in romance and stuff as well. So often I think, you know, first draft, maybe I put too much in and then it's a matter of working out, well, what can I, and I I really hate as a reader, be feel like I'm being manipulated to keep reading. So mm-hmm. I didn't want to do that either. <laughs> like, you know, I hate it when they say, and this happened, but they don't tell you when it is. And oh, really, that was a, such a terrible day, you know? Remember when? Oh my gosh, you know? And and, and the, halfway through, you're thinking, well, what happened on that terrible day? So, yeah. Um, and then you get there, and you're like, oh, is that all that happened? Um, so I very much, you know, I like this technique, but I think it can be tricky, um, as well. To me, it felt like it would work for this book, um, and so yeah, I fought for it. And one thing I always ask myself in edits and major things: this might be useful for people listening, because I think a lot of new writers or aspiring writers think that you have to change everything that the editors say, you know, and that you don't have a say, um, where that's definitely not the case. I mean, often there is a reason if they don't think something's working, but maybe their way, as I said, they didn't think the prologue was working. Their solution was to scrap it. Um, My solution fell in the middle. So I think they were right. The prologue wasn't working, but I don't think their solution was right. And so I worked out what my, you know, and what I always ask myself when I'm getting a major edit like that, which for me, cutting out the prologue was quite a big section. there was yeah. other things that I said that I cut out um, that I was fine with. But so I always ask myself, do I not want to do this? Because in essence, I'm lazy. Right? It's hard. Rewriting is hard. I just want to get it mm-hmm. perfect the first time. And you've done on all the, the you've re- already course. done all the work, you know? Yeah. Exactly. It's really hard. Yeah. So I ask myself, do I not want to do this? because I'm lazy and it's actually going to be a hell of a lot of work or do I not want to do it because I think the way I had it is actually right for the book and if it's the first one then I'll put on my big girl's undies and you know get stuck in and wind and crone and complain about it do it but if it's a second I will say no this is why I want to keep it the way it is and I'll fight you know pretty much to the death to keep it that way Um, and most of the times I get it. Very rarely do I, you know, they manage to convince me the other yeah. way around. So yeah, it's about so you have to I mean, one of the other things I said I think I got rid of in this book was and this came halfway through that I decided this would happen, that Deb's pass with her mum would be that her mum ended up in jail in mm-hmm. her late t- um sorry, early teens and went to jail because she was um abusing Deb. Um and she had it used to call and by proxy, but now mm-hmm. it's factitious disorder. By proxy, where people make up, you know, or hurt their kids or whatever, or make their kids sick to get attention Attention. and all that kind of stuff. And I thought, yeah, I'll do that because that indicates how, why she's so protective of Ramona and why she's wanting to be a better mum. But it also could be the spark that made her go to America when her mum got out of jail and she was feeling very vulnerable about, you know, all that sort of stuff. So then what happens when she meets um, Oscar, um, you know, made sense. And then my, second editor, because I had different infrastructure and in, in copy, said, you know what, it's very dark. It, there's light stuff and it's a fun book, I think. But there's also, there was gaslighting, you know, in um, there's a domestic violence, there's, you know, lying to a close family. And, you know, she's like, do we really need abuse of par- a parent's abuse of a child as well? Like, this is, you know, poor Deb. We told as writers that you have to give your characters crap and they have to, you know, we torture them. So then they can recover, but sometimes too much torture. And, um, she said, why did her mum just abandon her? You know, like that's not a little thing for a child's mum to walk out and say, Hey, I'm choosing other people or a life over looking after you. That's a huge thing. And, um, but it's simpler and it, you know, it stopped the whole, so I was like, yeah, that's true. And I've actually got, um, a quote on my wall here, um, I listen to a lot of writing podcasts, like I'm sure you do too. And one was with Emily Henry. I don't know who she was talking to, but she said it's not how big the stakes are, it's how personal they are. And okay. so I got that sort of that quote. I thought about, I found around the same time, and I think that's really true. So much, you know, we try and overcomplicate things or put too much drama and stuff in and crap, and you know, because we think, well, then they've got lots to overcome. But really, that's just kind of detracting from the deep. You know, emotional journey, and so I love that. It's not how big
0: the stakes are; it's how personal they are. And I'm trying to remember that in the future. That's such great advice. I might put that on my wall. As yeah, well. really good. It's like remember that show Trini and Susanna, and they used to say, "Just look in the mirror and take one thing off." Yes,
1: <laughs> It's a bit like that. So it's exactly that's the yeah. same yeah. thing. Take one thing out of your book, maybe. Yeah, yeah,
0: yeah. Because yeah. and you also had to take out the Ramona sexuality. Yeah, thing as well. That was that take- was
1: more. That was I took that out before I'd finished writing um, yeah. because I realised that I was forcing that in there because I thought, oh, you know, we need to be talking about you know important issues and diversity and well. And then I really think that can't be forced, so it didn't it didn't work for me. Yeah. Um, and then I thought, you know what, I don't need to do that. No, we are so I think worried about you know, and it's good we want diverse books, but we want people to write them who are you know come from diverse backgrounds, yeah. whether it's age culture, race, you know, um, whatever. But I think as writers that, you know, like I'm a white, middle-aged, straight woman. So, you know, so, uh, the only thing worse could be a white, middle-aged, straight man, right? <laughs> um, and and so I think the way we get diversity in our books is sprinkling just real characters, like, you know, so I put, and not necessarily obvious, so like i made one of the characters called Naira. I said her parents had an arranged marriage, you know, like, as we said, Quinn's brother is, Gay, his partner is called Darpin, and Mrs. D is older. You know, um so I feel like that is the way we can bring diversity to our books, not in point strong point of views, and not necessarily exploring, you know, the issues that are unique to a specific,
0: you know, part part of our society or whatever. Yeah, but not definitely not from their point of view, and not yeah, yeah, because we don't want to go there, do we, right? No, exactly. Um, <laughs> um, so talking about the editing process, do you feel like sharing any more yeah.
1: about your editorial, thoughts sure.
0: your notes that you received, how you
1: applied them? I have them? lots and lots of notes.
0: Wow. Oh, goody. Excellent.
1: Um, I'm just trying to think, and I actually did three kind of, this is quite a big uh, edit process. So I did what we call developmental edits. Is it's that analogous. the same as a structural? It's kind of, but I guess even more big picture kind of before they sent them off to the um Editor. So it was like in house, uh, my publisher and person who just coordinates the editing, they read the book and said, you know, these sort of things may. Um, and one of the things that they say um, was the developmental edit el- was a lot about the office. So they said, you know, um, unfortunately, at this stage, the aspect is probably the least successful facet of the story. Um, and I know you were thinking of fleshing out the office setting and characters you've created so they're more fully incorporated into the story but why don't we actually you know get rid of some of them she goes a lot goes on in the office it's immensely relatable and feels authentic but doesn't really add to the core story and so that was one of her sort of main things she said um, well, on top of on top of the hell of a twist, it would also be worth looking at how you build suspense towards that moment. So she was saying, you know, similar to what I said in that beginning, that a lot happens at the end, but you know, the beginning has to, to play its part and it has to matter as well. And she said, first of all, we need to work out what's the central core of, core of this novel. What diamond exactly are we polishing and go from, from there? For me, she said it's the friendship between the women, the women and Deb's relationship with her daughter. So the friendship between Deb and Quinn needs a little bit more work at the beginning, so we can see why they support each other, um, and then it fits much better into the betrayal later. You know, if they actually really care. And um, so I worked, you know, on their sort of relationship. I mean, there's pages oh, you can't oh see. Oh my god! I just pages and pages of highlighting. Yeah. Um, Quinn's list. So you know, we mentioned the. Um, the this did stay in there. The uh, the husband list. Husband list. But I had a lot more, um, she said, well, this is a cute idea. I'm not sure it's working in the novel. I'm sorry. I know when a lot into work, but, um, work went into it, but just doesn't feel like it's fully incorporated to the themes and storyline. Perhaps it feels a bit too cute in contrast to big emotional journeys of the characters and what we learned. So she wanted me to kind of get rid of the list. And so that was another thing where I was like, Nope, I want the list, but you know, I can pare back what I had. And so I had her doing a lot more
0: kind of things off off the the list. list, um, but, but the, the, the important thing of the list was the walking of the dog to meet yes, a cute man. Be,
1: yeah, yeah, exactly. And if she hadn't have done that, she wouldn't have met Mrs. D. Exactly. So then I go, well, if I get rid of the list, how does she meet Mrs. D. And to me, well, that feels like that more contrived. The, the list, you know, I've got a word that haunts me from my early days of edits. I mean, not edits, re- uh, rejections. rejections. And one of the That's things cool. I always got um, was this story is too contrived. Like this bill's contrived. So I'm very much. Oh, out I don't want it to be contrived. I want it to sort of flow in. So then we had so this other things in there. And I went, now I had the structural edits, which is um, with my editor, Lachlan Dobbins, who is fantastic. And I've worked with him on many books. But the last few years, he was off on paternity leave. So I didn't have him. And I really missed him because we just click and we get each other. And he's so wonderful. Um, like this is an example from his beginning. I'm so excited to work with you again, Rach. The so work wise and everything I love about your books, engaging, relatable, quick characters to root or secrets and lies, deep hurts to address and overcome plenty of humor, romance and excitement. So he always starts lovely. <laughs> um, you know, and, but even his stuff of, you know, he said, I've out, you've outdone yourself. And he went, and then he goes, um, the biggest, oh yeah, this is, this is, this is interesting. After leaving about Deb's New York ordeal, I thought I'm having Oscar turn up at the energy con and be Quinn's handbag guy with Twist Enough, but the revelation Oscar wasn't Ramona's father. And this is
0: really spoiler territory. Spoiler, spoiler, everyone. Uh, yeah, the
1: evil twin pushes fam- family pushes the workwives into tel- telenovela territory. It's truly nuts in the best possible way, but, <laughs> but yeah, the biggest challenge is going to make this believable and then to maintain the tension after the revelation so readers will cling on to the ride to the gripping end. I've got plenty of suggestions to make, but I think the key for me is that we need to pare back some of the smaller coincidental stuff in order that the more important coincidences um, are believable. So, you know, he said the inco- coincidences that happened were the whole Deb, Oscar, Quinn, like, meeting and actually, you know, having that connection. That's that's quite a coincidence. Yeah. But these things happen in real life. They do. Like, Quinn's relationship. Oh, sorry, so the budget regarding and the vet court, you know, the the, the the budget that Elijah has is lost. And then yeah. the vet happens to be someone who Deb's been on a date with. He said, she said, Mrs. D, knowing about Oscar, um, you know, they're the big things that need to happen because they propel the plot forward, but they're all quite big coincidences. So then he said, you know, we need to cut back on some other things that I had. The other mm-hmm. thing he said, also making sure the character's are there for a reason. And cutting back on some of the dead or sick partners, tragic upbringings, dead parents. He's like, so many people here. Take one ah. thing off, yeah. And so you know, like he he and now his page, his overview is huge. Um, you know, it's things like looking at the timeline and pace. Um, oh, and wow. and then there was one big thing in that they all that he actually liked. So I had a chapter in from one chapter from Oscar's point of view, which oh. I really loved. Actually, as I said, this book was a joy to write. So I actually had a much more, you know, friendly. View of it, and, I, and usually I say most books. I'm like, oh my gosh, this is so terrible! I can't believe you know, anyone would ever read this. But that chapter again, I thought, wow! I just, I had, I had a, I was wondering, you know, a few things, how to reveal things, and then I suddenly had, what if we have a chapter from Oscar's point of view, right? And it was just, just, I think it was just before or just after um he meets Ramona and her friends, and a whole lot is revealed. It was after he'd had a chat with Quinn and he told Quinn he was married um, and then basically it tells you a few people have said to me oh they would love a sequel because they want to see Oscar and Quinn's relationship that chapter showed that he did have feelings for her that uh-huh. he was str- struggling with because he was guilty that his wife you know he was married Yeah. Um, but his wife is sick and and so it was really it also showed why he lied to Ramona um, you know so to me it showed a lot of Thing and my struct the first edit, they said, Get that out. We don't need it. It's weird having a, a point a of view off. from one, you know, one chapter. But interestingly enough, I read Holy Ringland's book recently. I'm sure it had a chapter from a random point of view. Yeah. Um, so my sec the problem with getting rid of that chapter was the second enter, I didn't read that. And a lot of stuff in that chapter was very important to, you know, as I said, so then I had to put that chapter, so I, I'd sort of, I'd gotten rid of it without fully working out how to put all the other stuff in. So when yeah, he read yeah. it, he felt, well, there's some things explained in this book. And I told him, that's because I had this chapter that I loved. And I sent it to him and he's like, oh, I love it too. I think it works. But I went back again to my publisher and and they were like, no, we really, really, really don't want it. Um, And that was sort of, so that was one of the things I did give them. Um, But then I had to really work hard to make sure that everything that was really important in Oscar's story, not so much his feelings about Quinn, there was no way I could
0: really get that on the page. I do feel like that's implied though. Yeah, it's implied. I got the feeling because he wouldn't have have offered to walk the dog and do all those things if he didn't have some interest. Yes. And that's good because I wanted yeah. to make
1: it implied, but um, Italy, yeah, you, you definitely knew in his point of view his guilt, kind of how he was feeling about it. Yeah. And, but yeah, so I had to then put that sort of stuff about why he lied to Ravona into Deb's point of view and all that. So um, yeah, that yeah. was basically the structural and the developmental edits. So is uh, that that Rach,
0: to it? <laughs> That is such gold. I think people. This is why people need to read the book before they listen to the podcast because <laughs> you know. It just all makes sense. And it's that when the this podcast comes into its own, because people can listen to you talking about those things and say, Oh, that's how you do it. And if yeah. they're struggling with something themselves where they that's think, why oh I God, love your
1: podcast because oh. it is, if you have read the book, it's definitely, I mean, I've listened to it, you know, when I have read the book and I've listened to it when I haven't read the book, and it's always gold. Um, yeah. But if you've read the book, it really does enhance your podcast experience.
0: Yeah, yeah I think so too. So, Go get the book, people. You need to mm-hmm. read this one uh, because that's, so, that's all such gold. Thank you. Um, and Lachlan sounds like a dream to work with. He is, I guys. love him
1: so much. <laughs> um,
0: we have another listener question from Renee Black. And anyone who does send in a question, I'll give a little shout out and put in the show notes um, a link to your Instagram. So thank you, Renee, for your question. Her question is around the two genres that you write in. She would love to know, do you come up with a storyline first and then decide to write it as a rural romance or women's fiction? Or do you already have the genre in mind before coming up with the storyline? That's such a great question.
1: And I'm going to go back a little bit to when I first wrote a women's fiction novel and I was contracted for rural romance. But what happened is I had an idea that didn't fit. It was the Patterson Girls and it was supposed to be well, to me, I, I came up with the title. That was one of the ones that came up with the title. It was The Patterson's Curse, or Patterson's Curse based on weed. But I had a conversation with a friend of mine, and she said, that would make a great title for a book. And um, I said, yeah, it would. And I was writing Real Romance, so I immediately thought, well, it has got to be a curse. The book's called Patterson's Curse. The you it know, has got to be a love curse. And again, I think I was writing um, another book at the time. Often what would happen to me, and um, I think it started to happen again, which is a blessing, is that I'd be writing a book, um, and then mid, mid point of that book, I would suddenly get this idea that I absolutely loved and thought was way better than the books that I was currently writing. But I, you know, I was contracted, so I had to just push on and finish, but it was always comforting to know what I was going to write next. Um, and then for the last few years that hasn't been as strong, but now it's coming back. So I'm happy about that. So what happened is I, was, I had time to let this idea mull, I guess, and to be thinking about what, while I was finishing writing the other one. And, um. I suddenly sort of thought about a family curse instead of a love curse. The love curse kind of wasn't working for me, and then I won't say what this curse is because we're not spoiling that book as well as (laughs) Agatha. But um, I realised I needed three or four sisters to sort of discover a curse when when they're packing up their mum's things that they their mum had kept from them, and then they sort of that throws them into a spiral of um, doubt about their lives, and, and they all decide to try and disprove the curse separately. Um, and so I realized, well, this book, I, lo- I was so excited about the idea and the topic, but it wasn't a real romance. So then I went to my publisher and said, look, I know I'm published, on contacted for Rural, but can I do this? And she was really encouraging, which I know is not always the case. I've had other friends who tried to, you know, ask to do something different and the publisher's like, no, nah, just stay in your lane, you're doing well in that area, let's not, you know, rock the boat, just keep going with what you're doing. So she said, yep, go for it. And I did it. Um, and it was a challenge, but it was really enjoyable, you know, um, writing slightly different. I mean, I think they're very closely linked genres because women's fiction. I mean, they're all about relationships. Yeah. Um, And then women's fiction, so I've had strong romantic elements. But so that's what kind of happened with that one. And then so from then on, I was contracted for rural romance and women's fiction. So I knew, you know, I I do think in terms of, uh, yeah, I, I, I think now in terms of before I'm starting, I don't like an idea never comes. And I think, Oh, which will that be? It's always so obvious to me, if that makes, if that makes sense. Um, And I'm also, yeah, so I probably do. I mean, I think ideas come and I I guess I subconsciously think, well, is that going to be better as a rural or is that going to be better as women's fiction? Um, but it's more that I'm contrary. Yeah. I don't know if I'm answering this question properly, but yeah, yeah. this is good. So do you do write the two books a year? I did for a while and then I was, yeah. uh, got sort of burnt out. So now I'm mm. back to like, well, not back to one a year. I'm now doing one a year at the moment.
0: And do um, are they alternating or?
1: Yeah, they have been, I had a couple of years where it was women's fiction two in a row and no rural. Um, mm. And so, sorry, I think we decided, I think, I think the publisher was kind of quite encouraging me to, to just focus on the women's fiction, but I really do love writing rural romance as well. And I do think mixing up the both of them. As I said, they're different in ways, but they're close enough. Um, I think mixing up both helps me. Like when I'm writing women's fiction, I wish I was writing real romance and vice versa. And there's a joy in writing a romance, um, but there's also a different joy in writing, you know, women's relationships. So I like doing both. But the publisher was thinking, let's just focus on building you as a, a, you know, contemporary general fiction author. But then the upcry from my rural readers was so. You know, the outcome they wanted but well, it's an nice coming kind of thing. And so we've realized that people really love the rural romances and I love them too. So I decided then to, you know, do
0: alternate the books pretty much. Is one of them easier to write than the other?
1: Good question. I would say no, as we said, nothing's easy to write. But yeah. um in some ways, the rural romance or romance in general, because some of my later ones are, are veering less from romance, ruralish, and more just really straight contemporary romance in a small town, you know. Um, the romance, you know, some romance writers hate this, that there's, you know, they. if you say there's a formula, and I'm not saying it's a formula, because that makes me think you have to have this on page two and this on page five, and, you know. Uh, but there's a general, you know, a promise, I suppose, of romance. It's a yeah. promise of crime. It's like, it's like if you read a crime book and Someone dies in the first page. If you don't know who the killer is by the end, you're annoyed, right? <laughs> um,
0: yeah, so, readers expect some, yeah, and, and and expect certain things.
1: With the romance, you know, yeah. you expect you go in that, know you're having a happy ever after at the end, or happy for now, and that you're going to go on a journey with two people who, you know, are going to fall in love. They're going to have obstacles along the way. So, and it's usually going to be like uh, they're going to meet somehow. There's going to be a kiss, probably. In Most of my books, there's a love scene. So, I know that I have certain things to kind of follow. I suppose like a you know it's a stru- it's a loose structure yeah. where I don't have that structure so much with women's fiction because it changes depending on the story, how many point of view characters I do, and all that. So that makes it a little bit harder, I think, um although sometimes it's so just a flip side, it's harder, but it's also more freeing, whereas I know you know I've got to
0: follow certain
1: things in the romance if that makes sense, so yeah. yeah.
0: I bet your publisher was really glad they said yes to you writing your first contemporary fiction. Yes, <laughs> Women's I think fiction. they were. <laughs> it works out quite well. It did. Just for listeners who don't know, but that book, The Patterson Girls, went on to win uh, the A- an ABA. yeah, Australian Award yeah. book- for General Fiction. Yeah, that's right. In twenty fifteen, I think it was twenty sixteen. It was really. Yeah, and uh, did it, that also win a Ruby Award? Yes, it did yeah. Ruby Award, and I think yeah. an ARA Award maybe.
1: Yeah, we are making that up. That was very successful.
0: Awesome. So, all publishers out there who are saying, please don't, you know, go outside your genre. Yeah. Look what can happen if you exactly, exactly. you got to be open to possibilities. Not that I'm telling publishers how to suck eggs, but oh, well, I, okay. I do hear, <laughs> I do hear from friends who are writers who. You know they do want to write something a little bit different, and I totally get from the publisher's point of view that they they're the ones that have to market this, and they know yeah. where it fits on the shelf and all of that sort of stuff, and it's managing expectations and and there's all those issues of well, do I write something different with a pseudonym or like yeah. oh god, it must get so complicated, true. But yeah. I guess now your readers know that they're either going to get one or the other, and they'll yeah they'll probably love both.
1: Well, I think some people do. I do think that you've I've got a I'm not mathematical, but it's yeah. the Venn diagram where you've got yeah. <laughs> yes, circles overlap. Yeah, I think you know there's a lot of people who rural read, read- or romance readers are a, a breed of, a, of re- readers where they read so voraciously, oh. and you know they will if you love rural romance, they will buy every single rural romance book that comes out. Whereas I feel like people and so this is very you know, obviously there's exceptions. Just, yeah. But I feel like general fiction readers are, are different to those genre readers. Like say, if you read crime, you know, you read usually a lot of crime. Whereas I notice in sort of general contemporary fiction, often they're people who go to book clubs. They might read one or two books a month and they you know, that it's not their main sort of thing that they do. Um, you know, often it's teachers who will read in the summer holidays but then not read anything for the rest of the year. Because they're too busy doing all the other stuff that they have to do, yeah. And so I think the romance readers are more glued on, um, they really and they are. will probably read the women's fiction too. I also get that some people. It still amuses me when some people think, "Oh no, I don't read romance. Or I don't like romance." And it's like most of my romance books, most of the romance books that I read from other people I know or don't know but admire, you know, they're they're not what people think I think of a romance. You know, my rural romance is explore issues and other community relationships and you know just as much as as the general fiction. Um it's just the main plots st- through thread is slightly different focus. So yeah yeah I think that would like them if they gave them a try, but a lot of people think they only read specific things.
0: Yeah, but the romance writers and the romance readers, they know what's what. And we yeah. our mutual friend Penelope Janu, we talk yeah. about this all the time and say, you know, these romance readers they are voracious I've got a friend who's an artist and we were at a gallery opening last year and she said we were talking about books and she said do you want to see my guilty pleasure and she showed me her phone and she went into her iBooks and it was just page upon page upon page of romance novels and I said that's not a that's a wonderful guilty pleasure and I know many romance authors who would just love to see what's on your phone.
1: I've heard people show me that sort of stuff too as well. (laughs) It's so funny. Um, But I think that what we're seeing now all of a sudden, and, you know, whether you love or hate book talk, TikTok, is that romance, the younger generation are going, they're loud and proud that they want to read romance. They are. You know, and I think that's something that's never happened before in terms of, you know, even when everyone was reading Fifty Shades of Grey or whatever, it was still... um, yeah, my guilty pleasure. I can't believe I'm reading this crap yeah. you know, thing. Whereas the young people who are reading romance, like in the late teens, early twenties, are not ashamed yeah. at all, and I'm proud.
0: Yeah, isn't that it wonderful? It's I good. love book talk, and I love yeah, I love the young people reach. I know, so do I. I
1: just had to, you know, they branch yeah. out and don't stop just reading Colleen Hoover, so that I can could...
0: <laughs> come and read your Australian Colleen Hoovers, people. Yeah, people like Rachel, people yes, like Penelope, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Um, I have one last question for you. Did Writing the Workwives teach you anything new about writing after oh, 29 I actually, books? I actually just
1: saw something. I didn't, I don't, it taught me, not necessarily new, but it reminded me of things as I a stand, It reminded me that I really have to trust my gut and trust the magic and not, um, not, pay, any, like, not make any drastic changes or question why I'm doing things in the burst draft. Because things happen, like as I said, Mrs. D, was never, I never planned her and I don't know why I decided that the first thing on the husband was to get a dog. I don't know why I decided that Quinn didn't just go to a rescue, you know, dog rescue place or that her brother and his partner had a dog. Instead, I decided that she couldn't get a dog herself because her brother's partner was allergic. Now, why did that, who the hell knows? But also maybe it's because they're difficult for characters, you know, it's yeah. like, well, if she can just easily walk a dog, it's not quite as, you know, right. fun. Um, or if she's already walking a dog, it's not so then I decided that I would just have an elderly neighbor have a big dog that needed walking and she could no longer really handle it. Um, but that elderly neighbor became monumental in the plot. People have commented on the lovely friendship between Quinn Quinn and uh Mrs. D. But also, as I said, she is very important in the reveal and stuff. And when when I brought her onto the page, I did not know how I was going to have everything come out um, yet, you know, that, that sort of works. So I think I need to remember, A, not to censor myself in the first draft and just to go with whatever happens. The other thing is not to worry too much about what's coming um, because, you know, so often, and that's why I can't plot personally myself because I start then thinking, well, that's going to be stupid, that's not going to work, and that's going to be contrived, as I said. Um, but... If I actually get to that point in the book, often it's changed anyway. So my cons- my worries are no longer valid, or it's just it's not a problem because I've worked out by then how to do it. So if I think too far ahead, I so I've realised I just really have to trust the process, trust the magic, and it's hard because I'm thinking about oh, my next book and I'm like, well, I really don't know exactly what the plot, you know, what's going to uncover. And I have to remind myself that that's that's okay because that's pretty much how I've written all my other books. And, you know, some things will reveal themselves to me if I just trust it. And I know that my favourite authors write this way too, like Marion Keys and Leah Moriarty. And, you know, they always write books, which I think are amazing. So I know
0: that it's a matter of just your trust in the process. Because you, you've listened to all the podcast episodes, you would know that a lot of the authors that have come on have said exactly the same thing. It's just, just trust the process. And I think as a new writer, or well for me, Um, as yet unpublished just that's one of the hardest things to learn is to trust that process yeah
1: but it's scary and we're always it does miraculously most yeah Yeah. i think you know we if you're a reader you or if you've been a diehard reader for a long time and you read lots you intuitively know about story and so there's so much stuff going on like when we're sleeping when we're doing all the other things that you know our brain is still working we're away from the page so you've just got to trust that um and that sometimes means you write something maybe that's not right, but then you, if you feel that gut, that's not right. I think you just, you work out a different way. The yeah. other thing, I, one more practical thing I learned here, I actually didn't learn this through the book, but I tried it with this book. It's something I learned when reading Sally Hepworth's last book, I think, not the one that just came out, but her last book. And we're friends. So I said to her, oh my gosh, I'm noticed she doesn't. Refer to the time. It was um, the younger wife.
0: the Younger wife. Yeah. Not
1: refer to the timeline one at all, except um except at the very end. At the beginning, sorry, at the beginning, it says like one year. Uh, says so some, something happens, and then the next chapter is one year later or something like that, or one year earlier. One year earlier, yeah. and then you kind of just go through. You don't, you know, know how many months and how many weeks. She she doesn't really refer to is it Wednesday or is it Saturday and And timeline is something that always trips me up and that I'm always I just can't seem to to work it out in the beginning. Um, like I never know because I'm not planning. So I I I don't do it then. And then it just confuses me throughout and inevitably my editors will be like, Okay, well, you know, she's had a baby, but she was only pregnant for five months. And like things like this. And I'm like, oh god. Or, you know, something happened on Saturday, but then I'm thinking, well, when you know, those sort of things. that really can trip me up. And and I realized Sally didn't refer to it at all. And I said to her, did you witness that?" I'm like what? And she said, I don't, I never do. i have never noticed it before. But she said that she may have in the very early books, but yeah, she just basically just doesn't refer to it. And so if you think back in the work lives, I don't really refer to it either, apart from the very beginning, it says three months earlier. And then you kind of know when you get to that midpoint. Yeah. And there's very little things like, I think I mentioned school holidays, it's a bit vague, but. But there's not like, oh, this happened on Monday and so this is, it has to be Tuesday the next day. It, it's very vague. Yeah. And so I I think that works and yeah. from now on.
0: <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. The only other thing you had to do in terms of timeline that was pivotal to the plot was having Ramona yeah. being 15 and that coinciding with when Oscar was in New York and yes. Ramona was and that potentially was, conceived. so Yeah, yeah. and that,
1: that's true as well. Yeah, I had to make sure that was right. And that's another choice, I guess, where I decided not to put a specific year on it. Yes. I mean, it was to do with COVID as well because if I'd done it pre-COVID, well, um, I can't remember what, it had to be pre-COVID basically. Yeah. It had to be pre-COVID because it's set in an office or it had to be post-COVID. And when I was writing it, we weren't... We weren't really post COVID, we still aren't completely yeah. post COVID. And people were, you know, not in their office, um, a lot of the time. So you mm-hmm. can't have a story where people, you know, have real strong work friendship or the, the dramas that happen at work, um, if people are not in the office. So I thought it had to be post. So I tried post originally and then I got to the end of A A I was there was a few little references I like quite liked about the COVID in there, you know, not not distressing, but things like Deb liked working from home because she got a, you know, walk around the block once you know but then I realized I also because she moves around didn't want her to have she can't have known Quinn as long as the COVID is going to go out because yeah otherwise they would have you know and they ruined a whole lot of things so when I realized that so they couldn't have known each other more than a couple of years and they would have had to if it was post-COVID I just decided it's just easier not to put COVID in at all and to not put a time on the on the on the book
0: yeah and exactly and that's what going to make this book evergreen like no, hopefully it's a, <laughs> but it's not pivotal COVID yeah. whether it's poetry, really postal. really it, unless
1: um unless it is typical turtle I don't really know why yeah it does it now I've learned that as well like I think in one of my other books I've got the year and then I'd, I look back now and I go well
0: why do I do need that year yeah if we're not, yeah and some people use these to orient their own writing but and yeah and obviously if, it, if you're doing dual timeline on historic yeah, you kind of, of need it yeah yeah well, Sally really um, broke that rule with her latest one, which I'm listening to on audiobook at the yep. moment, The Soulmate, because that's all before, then, now, uh, pa- yeah, no, what yeah. is it? Now, uh, now and then. Or now, now and then and, and, and after. Yeah. 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 She yeah. must have had fun with that one. Now, yes. I'm just going to give a little plug for the Rights for Women podcast, because I know secret inside information that you've <laughs> just had a chat with Sally Hepworth and I, I spoke to Pam earlier today and she's editing it. So that will be coming out really soon. And I'm can't wait to listen to that chat between you and Sally about, is it about the soulmate or are you just it's having about, a general writing it's about, chat? It's kind of like,
1: it's not, it was general. It was more how we write differently. Great. Because oh, we are very different in terms of the number of drafts we do. Um, you know, she's plotter, isn't she? a plotter. She's a plotter. I'm a pantser. Mostly, but we both realized, you know, I think there's a spectrum. Everyone's yeah. on the spectrum somewhere. So it was more about the editing, like differences, how, because of the first draft. So it's about both our books a little bit, where we got the ideas from, but then the writing process,
0: how it was different. Yeah. Can't wait for that one. That'll be coming out soon, people. So go over to that podcast and have a listen. Rachel, it has been an absolute delight speaking with you. And I could probably just keep talking all day. You know. <laughs> it's just so great. I loved the book. Everyone should go and buy it. Um, what's next for you? Got another one in the works? I've got a rural romance coming out. and said It's not really very rural. <laughs> it's between a nun
1: and, oh. uh, and a tattooist.
0: <laughs> oh, my God. I love the sound of
1: that. Yeah, so tattooist. I'm, I call it my rural romance. Australian contemporary sound and music, basically. We have all the characters. At the beginning, the hero has a Friends of Benefits that's like the Baroness. His brother is very much in there. He's like Uncle Max. He's not a single dad, but he does foster with his brother, Delinquent Boys. Um, and yeah, of
0: course, you have the nun. So it was a lot of fun to write. And the nuns go on TikTok. That sounds absolutely fantastic. I bet you had a lot of fun with the dialogue. <laughs> and I'm sure Holly Ringland will appreciate the reference to a tattooist in there as well. Yes, given true. her novel. <laughs> Um, and what about your online book club? You've got a big event coming up, haven't you?
1: Yes, so I run an online book club for Rachel John's online book club with my friend, author, Anthea Hodgson. And um, we've got almost 5,000 people. It's a very active, great group. We do read a book a month and talk about it. And, no, you don't have to do it. It's homework. But next year, for the very first time, we're having an in-person retreat in Harndorf in uh, the Adelaide Hills. And there's still tickets available. There's going to be about 12 authors, including us there. There's going to be Book discussions, book quizzes, maybe some bookish craft. There's, it's just going to be a real, real fun, um, weekend. So yeah, you can find out information about that as Rachel John's bookclubretreat.com.
0: That sounds amazing. And of course we'll put all of those links into the show notes as Thank well you. as the books that Rachel mentioned, the bestseller code and the book about the archetypes. I'll get that link from you as well, Rachel. Yeah. people can look those up. Thank you, my loves. Have a wonderful Christmas, and hope you get a break over the summer with your beautiful boys. And thank you. I will hopefully (laughs) catch up with you in twenty twenty three. Excellent. Thanks so much. Pleasure. Oh, it sounded like we cheersed then. (laughs) That was like cheers. There you go, Rachel Johns. I really hope you enjoyed that deep dive with Rachel. I love that she was happy to go into so much detail, even though it meant spoilers, and all of those editorial notes were just brilliant. If you're just starting out as a writer, or like me, you've yet to be published, you really have no idea what to expect when it comes to editorial notes. I mean, we hear about structural edits and copy edits, but Rachel reading out her actual notes from her editors was so insightful. So do make sure you grab a copy of The Workwives or pop it on your Christmas list so you can get the most out of this episode and really see how Rachel applied all of those craft aspects we talked about. You'll find links to the writing books that Rachel talked about in the episode, uh, along with information about her book club retreat and the Rights for Women podcast episode between Rachel and Sally Hepworth. So jump into the show notes on your podcast app or on the website, writersbookclubpodcast.com. I want to give a shout out to the listeners who sent the questions in today, Deb Jordan and Renee Black. Thank you so much. I love it when you guys send in your questions. They're always so good, so thoughtful. I've put links to both of those author's Instagram accounts in the show notes so go and give Deb and Renee a follow too Renee's debut novel On the Download is coming out in February 2023 so congratulations Renee that's so exciting, let's all make sure we support Renee at launch time you can follow her on Instagram at Renee underscore black underscore writes. and I see Deb's been working hard on her writing and has a first draft done and dusted as well, so well done Deb go give Deb a follow as well, it's Deb underscore Jordan underscore Writer. Now to our last writer for the year in the podcast. You might remember last year I interviewed Marcus Suzak and rather than focus on one book we had more of a wide-ranging chat about writing craft across all of his books. It was pretty extraordinary. For the last episode of 2022 I'm doing the same thing but this time with the incredibly talented Kate Forsyth. Let me tell you a little bit about Kate. Dr Kate Forsyth is an award-winning author, poet and storyteller. She has a doctorate of creative arts in fairy tale studies, which has led to an amazing body of novels, inspired by fairy tales and myths, but definitely not as you know them. Her most recent novel is The Crimson Thread, a reimagining of the Minotaur in the Labyrinth myth. It's set in Crete during the Nazi invasion and occupation of World War II, and it's absolutely fascinating. Her other historical novels include Beauty and Thorns, which is a reimagining of Sleeping Beauty, told in the voices of four women of the pre-Raphaelite circle of artists and poets. Then we have The Wild Girl, which is the story of the forbidden romance behind the Grimm Brothers Fairy Tales, which was named Most Memorable Love Story of 2013, and Bitter Greens, which is a reinvention of Rapunzel, which won the 2015 American Library Association Award for Best Historical Fiction, and it also is just such a fabulous novel. Kate has also written non-fiction books, books for middle-grade children, and picture books, many of which have garnered awards. So overall, Kate is really just quite extraordinary, and I can't wait to dive into the craft and process she brings to her writing. I'm going to bring you this episode in that drowsy, dreamy week between Christmas and New Year when you're in the mood to reflect on your writing and absorb some wisdom. As Susan Freeland said about Kate, surrender yourself to a master storyteller. Speaking of that week after Christmas, it's always my biggest reading week of the year. I just sit around inhaling all the books I've received, gifted to myself. If you'd like to add Kate's latest novel, The Crimson Thread, to your Christmas haul, I have a copy to give away. To enter, go to Writers Book Club Instagram or Facebook and look for the giveaway post. Entries close on December 12th, but of course, if you're listening to this podcast in the future, there's a new giveaway every month, so follow me on Instagram or Facebook and you'll always be in the know. And of course, you can pick up a copy of The Crimson Thread wherever you buy your books, or any of Kate's books for that matter. Okay, that is it for this month. You'll find all the show notes for this episode right here in your podcast app or on the website at writersbookclubpodcast.com. I recorded today's episode on the beautiful unceded lands of the Garrigal people of the Eora Nation. Thanks so much for listening and I'll catch you at the end of the month. Until then, happy writing.